Welcome. You are listening to Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. We hope today's message helps you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thank you for listening. Well, if you've got your Bible this morning, if you get it open to the book of Romans, today we're going to be finishing out our study of chapter 7 of the book of Romans in our series called What He's Done. Our theme verses for this series, and if you know them, you've been around, you can say them with me, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We have been proclaiming good news again and again in this series. And this morning, I'm here to tell you, I've got more good news for you today. Aren't you grateful for that? We celebrate the good news of God and the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to save and to transform all who trust in him. We've been talking about this good news week after week. We started uh, talking about the gospel from the very beginning, talking about how it's foundational and transformational for life with God, both now and forever. In the first five chapters, we talked about how foundational the gospel was, how foundational it is. We talked about what God had accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And in these last chapters, what we've been studying is chapters six through eight, how the gospel is also transformational. How it not only speaks of what God has accomplished for us, but it speaks of what God wants to accomplish within us. And we've been talking in recent weeks about how trust in Jesus Christ leads to what? transformation in Jesus Christ. How ultimately, yes, the gospel is for our eternal salvation, but it's also for our daily deliverance. How the gospel, yes, is for us to have the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, but it's also for us to experience the freedom of God in Jesus Christ day by day. How, yes, it is for us to experience a rescue from the penalty of sin, but it's also for us to experience a rescue from the power of sin. So today, we continue forward by looking at the end of chapter 7, and we're going to be in one of the most interesting, some might call it complex, I believe one of the most utterly helpful parts of the book of Romans, simply because of how personal and how practical Paul gets in helping us understand daily life with Jesus. By the end of today's message, my goal is to help you understand the text, but also to help you learn to live all of your life, each moment, every day, more and more dependent upon Jesus Christ. Because you know more and more of who he is and more and more of who you are, it should lead you to depend more and more 
on his grace and his power in Jesus. So today, main point is this, all right? Um, if you got something to write down notes this morning, I always encourage you to do it. You don't have to do it, but my encouragement is to do it because I, I tend to believe that sometimes when we engage uh, with it by note-taking, um, sometimes it gives us opportunity to think more deeply and then to later remember it more accurately and then hopefully to apply it more faithfully. So main point this morning, God's perfect law and my imperfect flesh are meant to lead me to depend more and more on the grace and deliverance of Jesus, all right? God's perfect law, it's the first piece, and my imperfect flesh, those two together are meant to lead me into a life of greater and greater dependence upon the grace and the deliverance of Jesus Christ. We get this from the text itself. So without delay, I read, and I hope you'll follow in your Bibles, from Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want but the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The main point this morning is this. God's perfect law and my imperfect flesh are meant to lead me to depend more and more on the grace and on the deliverance of Jesus. All right, so we're gonna dive into this text. Um, I'm gonna do my best to be efficient with time so that we can move through the text. Um, And then I wanna spend some time at the end wanting to make sure that we know how to walk in light of the word that God speaks to us, all right? Sound good? So the the way to understand the text is to see in it the three main questions of the text. Look at your scripture, all right, that's in front of you. See if you can identify real quick. I'll give you just a minute. See if you can identify the three main questions of this text. It, It works like a question and answer section and there's three questions, three answers. Can you find them? Everybody see him? All right, first question, question number one, where is it? Verse seven, right? What shall we say then? That the law is sin? That's question number one. Where's question number two? Verse 13, y'all got it. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Right, that's question two. Question three, did y'all see it? Where is it? Verse 24, that's right. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? All right, those are the three main questions of the text. So what I'm gonna do this morning is I'm gonna walk through the three main answers to those questions, all right? Because essentially our main points this morning are the three answers to the questions that Paul writes as he writes to the Church of Rome and to us today. And I bet you that every single one of us have asked these questions at some point or another. So this morning I'm excited to be able to dive into it because I believe that as we do, we'll have opportunity to really relate to the text as we go through it and then to respond to God as he speaks into our hearts. All right, so look, first point this morning is this. You can write it down however you want to, but it's basically this. God's law is perfect, okay? God's law is perfect, God's perfect law, okay? The first question that that Paul wrestles with 
because he's just come out of the section of Romans where he's basically describing how Jesus has set us free. What a good gift it is to be set free from the endless trying to do right under the law, from the endless attempts to be righteous under the law, from the endless bondage, that's the word we used last time from Romans 6 into the start of Romans 7, bondage to the law. Always knowing that we need to do right but never being able to do right, Jesus came in to set us free, to change our hearts, to do what the law could never do. In the early part of chapter seven, he says, it's a good thing, like you were married to the law and it's like your spouse, you've died. The the marriage is severed between you and your spouse, the law. What a glorious thing it is that you can be now free, totally free, not only forgiven, but free from bondage to performance and law keeping. That's what Paul has just said right before this. So the obvious question then, is the question on the screen. So what shall we, how do we think of the law then? Has anybody wondered, as a Christian, be honest about this, what in the world am I supposed to do with the law now? Anybody ever wrestled with that question? You read through the Old Testament in your yearly plan, you get to the book of Leviticus and things slow down a little bit, don't they? And you're, you're scratching your head going, you know, I know I read this. I have got no clue what all of this means for me today. I've just got to go to work. Anybody ever been there? And you're wondering, what is the connection? Maybe it's not Leviticus, and maybe it's even something like the Ten Commandments, or, 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 or you, you name it. When you get to all of these, what feel like heavy commands in the Scripture, clear instructions in the Scripture, and yet you know you're under the grace of Jesus Christ. We're not saved by law. We're saved by his work for us and his grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. Salvation does not come through law. Salvation comes through a person whose name is Jesus. And we're also grateful for Jesus and his salvation and his grace. But what then do we do with the law? Is the law like bad? Like we were in bondage to it and we should be glad we're out of it? Does that make the law then bad? We've all wrestled with this question. And the clear answer to this question comes in verse 12. I know we're skipping a bit, but if you look at your Bible, the answer to this question, the clear answer is right at the end before he moves to the next question in verse 13, verse 12. And what does Paul say? Y'all read this scripture with me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we know where he's going to lead us. He's going to lead us to see that, no, the law's not bad. In fact, the law is, is perfect. The law is righteous. The law is good. And you go scratch your head again and go, well, I'm just not sure I get it. Help me understand it. And Paul is here to help us. So if you look at the text, we're going to walk through some ways that that God helps us see that truly his law is good, righteous, and holy. It is meant for our best. And there's several ways that God's law has 
purpose in our lives. And we're going to walk through these as we look through the text. I have taught these again and again and again um, here in my time as pastor of, of our church, and I will continue to teach them because we continue to need help remembering the purpose of God's law. Part of his purpose, we're going to look at it here starting in verse 7, is that in God's law, you have an opportunity to know something more of God. You have an opportunity to know more of his perfections, his perfect design in all things, and his perfection within himself, his perfect character in all things. And by knowing more of his design and more of his character, you also will have clarity when it comes to knowing what sin is generally. Because sin is everything that is not of God's perfect character and God's perfect design. So let's look at verse 7. I'm going to show you this. He answers the question, is, is law, the law then sin? Like, is the law just have no place in our lives? Is it just bad because we ended up in bondage to it? And, and, and the answer to the question is, heck no, if you're from Georgia. By no means, if you're reading from the ESV, how would your mom say it? Some of y'all can't even use the words. <laughs> no way, Jose. Because you see, look at verse 7. If it had not been for the law, like if you had not had the law, Paul says, I, I would have never known what sin is. He gives a specific example. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul is quite humble and quite honest because he's going, I mean, honestly, like if the law had not been given, I probably would have been out there going, oh, this is not that big of a deal. I would have been out there in the middle of my own covetousness, probably justifying myself, probably defending myself, going, well, this is just normal. This is just natural. This is just what it means to be human. And I would have never, ever, probably ever come to a place of conviction, a place where I know that I know that I know this doesn't belong in me, where I know God is other than this. This right here is not of God. I would have never come to that place if it had not been for the clarity of the instruction of God saying, I am not a jealous God, so therefore, do not covet. Do you see? Do not covet. I would have never known had it not been for the law. Um, I've got a two-year-old at home. Anybody have little kids at home? All right, several of us do. I also have an eight-year-old at home. Um, we have rules in our house, all right? 
We have clear rules. And we go over our family rules again and again and again. So for instance, Emma Grace, she's two years old, she's walking around, she's just old enough to know how to pull, we have an ice drawer in our refrigerator, all right? So the drawer, the freezer actually pulls out from the fridge. Emma Grace would like to think that that ice drawer is one of her toys, okay? She goes over and she loves to pull it out from the fridge and then slam it as hard as she can back into the fridge and pull it out and slam it. And then she'll pull it out and she'll take the ice out and she'll hold it in her hand. Sometimes she'll lick it, put it back in the thing. Sometimes she'll take it out, leave it on the floor and then you come across and it's a big puddle of water. Sometimes she'll take it out, throw it across the room and break things, all right? This is what two-year-olds do. So we have a very clear rule that developed in our house. Only grown-ups pull out the ice drawer. Why do they make those things at toddler levels? They obviously do not have children, all right? These engineers. So, you do not pull out the ice drawer. Well, because there is a clear rule in the house, there is no way that Emma Grace can walk up to the fridge and go pulling out the ice drawer and slamming it back in without knowing that is not what she should do. Daddy is a good daddy. Daddy is a kind daddy. Daddy is a fair daddy. Daddy is a generous daddy. But I have a heart to keep our house in order and to not break our fridge again and again and again. I know how that fridge is made. I know how it's designed. So the design of my house is that we're not going to tear apart something that costs thousands of dollars to buy. Okay? She doesn't understand that. But she has to trust that her daddy is a good daddy and a smart daddy and a kind daddy. And she has to hear her daddy say, we don't pull the drawer out of the fridge and slam it back in. And we have to respect daddy and what he says because again, he's good and he's wise and he's kind and he loves me. But without that, she would probably not feel conviction when she goes over to the drawer and just pulls it out and slams it back in again and again and again. It's actually the law that brings her some awareness when she does that and I say, Emma Grace, with a certain tone of voice, she looks at me and she knows. Y'all know what I'm talking about? She knows that is not daddy's heart, that is not daddy's design, that is not daddy's way, that is not in accordance with dad's instruction. She knows. So the law is good because the law helps her know something of me. The law helps her to know something of how refrigerators work. The law helps her to, to know something of how order in a household should be. The law helps her to understand submission to authority, which is a good gift in her life. The law helps her to know me, but also when she goes to reach for that drawer, the law helps her to know when she is wrong. Y'all know what I'm saying? This is what we're talking about, okay? The law of God helps us to know God's 
Go back to the side. His perfect design, his character, and what sin is generally. From the very beginning, in the garden of Adam and Eve, God's clear instruction helped them to know something of who he is and really something of how they were designed to operate. And then they clearly knew when they had crossed the line, they knew that they knew that they knew. He called their name Adam, Eve. And just like Emma looks over at me when I call her name, they hid themselves in the garden because they were ashamed. They knew that they had disobeyed. When you read through the law, friends, whether it's from the beginning in the book of Genesis, whether it's in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, right? Um, when you get to Leviticus and we go through all of these, here's what I want you to do. Look at the instruction of God in its totality all the way into the New Testament and lean into the instruction of God because the instruction of God, ask yourselves when you get to every law, what is this teaching me about God? What is this teaching me about his perfection? What is this teaching me about his holiness? What is this teaching me about his design for all things in the world? What is this teaching me about his heart and his ways? And how does he want for me to see how sin is the very opposite of who he is and what he desires? Do you see? That is God's good intention in the law. And it'll help you read it practically when you're reading through the Bible. But Paul says it's more than this. Not only is it to help us to see sin generally, but get this, it's really to also help us see what sin is personally. Because when we talk about sin, we're not just talking about it in a general sense. It's, it's fun to kind of talk about it and go, oh, Emma Grace, silly little girl. Oh, Adam and Eve, what were y'all thinking? And you read through any other text in the scripture, you look at anybody's life and you can see sin generally. But Paul says it's something more than that. Part of the goodness of God's law, the purpose of God's law is to bring not just the world in general to its knees, but it's to bring you to your knees. For you to see personally how you have walked away from the Lord. Verse eight, he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. I love that Paul chooses to use the 10th commandment, okay, when he's talking about the law. Because it was the 10th commandment, he says, covetousness that nailed him to the wall. If you think about it, the first nine commandments... All right, think about the 10 commandments, right? Back in the book of Exodus, how God gave the law, those clear basic instructions. The first nine commandments all relate very clearly to external behaviors. You could easily say that you could keep those commandments by doing certain things. 
So I could find myself going to church, or I could, find my, I, I could always obey the laws of my parents, or I could watch my words and, and not swear, take the Lord's name in vain, or, or I could not have adultery, or I could not murder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I can use my behavior to think that I'm actually obeying all of those commands. But when you get to the 10th one, thou shalt not covet. Suddenly I go, uh-oh, because that's not related to my behavior, is it? Actually, none of them we know from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, are related just to behavior. They're all related to the heart. Jesus says it's never about adultery. It's about you living outside of faithful, faithfulness and relationship. It's about your heart. It's never about murder. It's about you always loving your neighbor and never harboring bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred against him. They, they're all about the heart. But for a good law keeper, so to speak, whose heart is not changed but still wants to feel good with God, you could make the first nine just about behavior until you get to the tenth. And the tenth is all about the heart. And Paul says... This one ripped me to pieces. <laughs> Sin, verse 8, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. My dad tells a story about me when I was a little boy. I was a little boy one time. I have to have compassionate immigrants because I remember this story. He talks about when I was a little boy, two or three years old, the story goes like this, all right? It was actually very memorable for my dad's life because it was the first moment that he spanked me and he hit me on the hand. And he said it went like this, that there are rules, of course, in my house. There was a delicate little vase that was sitting on a table and he had not made a rule about this vase yet because I had not gotten close to destroying it yet. Until one day that I went up to the vase as a little two-year-old, and I went, he could tell I was going to grab the vase. And he says, Barrett, no. Look at me in the eyes. Don't touch the vase. And he said, just as big as you please, I looked him back in the eyes and inched my hand a little bit closer. <laughs> I didn't touch it yet. And he says, Barrett, no. Do not touch the vase. And sure as you please, he says, I looked at him in the eyes, trembling a little bit, and I moved even closer to the vase. He said, he looked at me one final time and says, Barrett Brian Bowden, that's my name if you don't know, that three names in my household, that was it, okay? Barrett Brian Bowden, yes, I'm a triple B. Do not touch that vase. He could have pulled my hand away, he was that close, but he wanted me to make the decision. My little trembling hand, he said, I went up and grabbed the vase with two hands. And as soon as I did, he said, I started to cry. <laughs> and he said, I had to do it. First time ever, he spanked me, popped me on the hand. And then he said, I started to cry. And my dad started to cry, that's what I'm trying to say. We're both sitting there crying because neither of us <laughs> apparently enjoyed this moment very much. What is it, guys, about knowing the line that makes you want to just test it? Anybody? Anybody? What is it about 
knowing this is a clear instruction of God that puts the enemy's voice in our ear like Adam and Eve. Did he really say? Are you sure? You could get closer. And they reach out and they reach out and they reach out until eventually you take a hold of it. And what Paul is saying is what's so weird about the law of God is that not only does it give us some sense of who he is and what he desires, how he's designed things and what's, what it, sin is generally. I mean, like, I knew that I was not supposed to, I'm sitting here looking at my dad's eyes, I'm not supposed to touch it, but something else is at play. Though I knew who he is and what he designed and what he desired and that it would be wrong, there's another thing going on and it's not just sin generally, it's sin personally. Because something has welled up in my heart all of a sudden to want to do the very thing that I should not do. That is what we're talking about when we talk about a corrupt, sinful heart. The brokenness of sin not only disobeys, but actually moves us to want to disobey. Here's a commandment, and then moves intentionally, personally, as soon as we hear it, to go, well, it's almost like hearing his instructions gives us a playlist for how bad we can be. Why, do, when I tell Emma that about the refrigerator, does it suddenly make her want to go do it? I don't know. That's how I know children are sinful, okay? Because you give them a clear instruction and, and suddenly they find themselves creating ways to break your clear instructions. And they're little versions of me. And they're little versions of you. We so want to be in charge of our, our own lives. We so want to be sovereign. And every law that God lays down feels like an infringement upon our absolute sovereignty. It, it, every place that we're called to submit ourselves reminds us we're not God. And it pre prevents us from being the sovereign ruler of our own hearts and our own lives. And our flesh hates this. This was exactly what Adam and Eve were dealing with, Genesis 3, 4. What was the first temptation from the servant in the garden? You will be like God. And so they took a hold of it to see how far they could go, to see how in control they could be, to put themselves in an equal place of God. And this is the essence of the first sin, and it is the essence of our sin, our personal sin against God. Can I get a witness? Anybody in here feel this? And this commandment kills. But it's not the law that kills. It's sin that kills within us upon hearing the law. Do you see the difference? It is actually good for the law to show us who God is, to show us what he desires, to show us how he's designed all things, and to show us what it looks like to rebel against that, against him. Not just in a general sense, but in a personal sense. Question one, 
What then shall we say is the law sin? And what is the answer to that question for us, even who are under grace in Jesus Christ? Is the law bad? The answer is what? Heck no, right? By no means. Verse 12, no. We have high regard for the law as Christians. We love reading Leviticus. We love reflecting on the Ten Commandments. We love the Beatitudes, these these high, really heavy teachings of the standards of God. We hold to them. We believe in them. We submit to them because they have purpose. They are holy and righteous and good. They help us to know who he is, and they help us to know our sin. Do you see? Second question. So the second question, as we think about the purpose of God's law here, revealing that we need to be saved, that's it. If you can get that first one, then we can move to the second one, okay? God's law postures us in reminding us that we need to be saved. Secondly, all right, so we talked about God's perfect law. The second question, as we Look at it, and its answer is going to lead us to this. Not only standing, understanding God's perfect law, but understanding more of our imperfect flesh. Okay? And we're going to see this through, through verses 13 to 23. So not only should we understand more of his law, but we have to understand more of how far we have fallen. So the, the second question is here in verse 13. Did that which is good then... Bring death to me? In other words, well, can I just blame the law? Man, if, if, if I didn't start to experience this temptation to be covetous until I heard the commandment, thou shall not covet. If Emma Grace didn't feel the temptation to open and slam the ice door until I heard, she heard me say, you should not do that in my house. Then should we blame dad? Should we blame the law? Did the law do that to your heart? And the answer, of course, is, again, in Georgia language, heck no, by no means. It was sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, Paul's saying, It wasn't the law's fault, it's my heart's fault. It's my own choice to rebel against God, my own choice to disobey the law. And actually, it was meant to lead me to a place that I realized how deep my sin was, how deep that pit is, and how helpless I am to get out of it. And then he sums it up in another answer, verse 23, the end of the passage. Again, I'm skipping down a little bit, but I wanted you to see his clear answer. He goes, no. It's not the law's fault, it's sin's fault, sin's fault in me. Here's another way to say it, verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he's saying it's not, it's not the law's fault. I can see that the law is good and perfect and holy and righteous. I can see that. But I also am seeing at the same time, it's not the law, it's something in me. Something that is broken 
in me. It is my sin nature that continues to indwell me, that continues to want to pull me back in. It is this temptation to gratify my flesh rather than to live in the freedom and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is that in me that is the problem. It's not God, it's not the commandment, it's me. I heard that John Caleb's favorite song is one of the recent songs by Taylor Swift. It's me, it's me, something like that. I'm the problem, it's me, all right? He admitted this to our Men's Bible Collective recently, and word got to me, I wasn't even there, everybody's talking about it, so we're glad to know John Caleb loves Taylor Swift. I don't know that song, all I know is the chorus, so please do not hear that, I promise you, I don't know the song. But I have heard the chorus, it's me, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. That chorus could have been written from Romans chapter seven. Paul, back 2,000 years ago, is going, it's me, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me, all right? That's essentially what we got here in Romans 7. If that illustration doesn't work for you, just please forget it and let's move on, because I might be in trouble later. My wife typically says, you cannot ever do that again. All right, but what he's saying is, it's me. It's my imperfect flesh. Another way to, to, you could use in this other phrase, it's my indwelling sin. That's another way to talk about this. It's my indwelling sin. I do believe, by the way, there is some debate around is this an unbeliever or a believer. I absolutely believe, based on the text itself and my own experience, that Paul is talking here about himself as a saved man. There's several textual reasons for that. There's a change of verb tense. The verbs seven to 13 are in past tense, but if you start in verse 14 on, all of the tenses are present. There's a change in situation. Verse seven to 13 talk about sin killing him, but in verse 14 on, he talks about his struggle with sin. He's engaged in a combat. He talks about how he delights in his law. Look at verse 22. I delight in the law of my inner being. That sounds like somebody who's saved. Unsaved people don't do that. Even though sin is at work in him, in his heart, he loves the Lord and he loves the law of the Lord. We know from chapter eight, sinful minds are hostile to God. They don't submit to God's law, nor can they do so. So how could this be an unbeliever here in chapter seven? He admits he's a lost sinner. Look at verse 18. I know nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. See, unbelievers are not aware that they're lost. They're, they're so sinful, they're, they're not, they, they think they can save themselves. So I, for a lot of reasons, I believe this is talking, Paul's talking as a believer. And he's laying out a struggle that every honest believer could tell you about. A struggle being saved, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet at the same time feeling temptation towards sin in your flesh. Can, if you're an, if, I almost said if you're an honest believer in the room this morning, that's a bad question to ask, forgive me. If you have ever, as a believer, experienced temptation to sin in your flesh, could you raise your hand? 
I'm not going to ask otherwise, because we would all just be too jealous of you. But there are some camps that would cause you to believe that as soon as you're saved, or as soon as the Spirit or the grace of God comes upon you in a new way, in an empowered way, that you can be completely sinless. You can be completely done with struggle to sin. I do not believe that teaching squares with Scripture, nor do I believe that teaching squares with the experience of people who I've read again and again throughout history and who I know personally, including myself, who would say, even as a saved, spirit-filled, redeemed Christian, the temptation to sin is ever-present. Yes, we should choose always Jesus Christ and submission to him and life in the spirit. We should not give any room to gratify the flesh, but to say that there's not temptation or at times slip-ups, I believe is just dishonest. I believe Paul is laying out his inner struggle. He talks about it in verses 14 to 17 here. For we know that law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I'm agreeing with the law that it's good. In other words, I'm going, I know that this is wrong. I know this is not what God desires. And in essence, I am saying I believe God. I love him and I love his instruction. I know that this is not what he wants of me, and I'm agreeing with that. So it's no longer I who do it, but the sin dwells in me, yet there's an experience of indwelling sin. The same repetition is repeated in verses 18 to 20, and then it's repeated again in verses 22 and 23. So who are we? Who's our true self? (laughs) Well, the question is settled. He says, like, verse 23. I'll flip forward to that. He, he delights in, in the law. The law. He, he delights here, verse 22, in the law of God, in his inner being. In verse 20, he says, it's no longer I am doing this. It, it's sin that, that dwells in me. So what he's saying is, As a Christian, we have experienced a complete identity transformation. We know that we know that we know we belong to God. That's the last sermon. If you missed it, go back and listen, all right? We belong to God. We have been freed. We belong to him as as his loved ones, and we love him. We know that we don't have to give ourselves endlessly to sin because he has severed bondage to sin in the law, and he has brought complete change in our hearts and in our minds and our lives. We now belong to him. That is our truest self. The real me loves God, loves the law of God. However, there's still a powerful force of the flesh and of sin and rebellion within us. The question of who we belong to, it's settled. But the ongoing conflict with sin is not. This is the process of sanctification. 
is learning more and more out of our love for God and our delight in his law, how to live surrendered to him and filled with the Holy Spirit, which we will be talking about starting next week in Romans chapter eight, living a spirit-filled life. I can't wait to talk about it. But you can't appreciate what the Spirit of God wants to do in your life until you understand what the flesh of God is still trying to do in keeping you from Jesus. The flesh is still a real force in our life and sin and Satan are still real enemies to us. We have to be honest about the fact that we are in an ongoing battle We're fighting from victory and not for it because Jesus has already secured us by his grace. Praise God. But yet we are in an ongoing battle against flesh and sin. And Paul is speaking honestly about this. And here's here's how I'd put it. And I move toward a close. As you grow as a Christian, this is from the Gospel-Centered Life. It's a resource I've used for many, many years in my preaching, teaching, training here and around the world. It's one of the most helpful ways to understand what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter seven. This is real stuff, y'all. This is your life as a Christian, okay? As you move through time, there is a point at which God, I pray, saves you. And today, if you are not saved, your most urgent need is to come to a point of repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And even today could be a day of salvation. You desperately need Jesus Christ. You do. There comes a point in which all of us have to make a conscious choice of our will. Are we going to choose to commit ourselves to Jesus Christ? Are we going to surrender ourselves to him and trust in him, transfer our dependence to him? Are we going to continue to be our own gods? Are we going to recognize that he alone is God, that he loves you and he came for you? And only through Jesus Christ can you be put back right with God. There comes a point of salvation. And today can be that day for you if you're not saved. But for the rest of us, from that point of salvation, here's here's what I want to say. As time moves forward, as a Christian you actually will become more and more and more aware of God's holiness in your life. You don't grow less in your understanding of God's holiness. You actually grow more in your understanding of God's holiness. When you go to places like Exodus, I can tell you this, Over the last 20 years of my life, the Ten Commandments, those basic building blocks of moral instruction that God gave, those have become weightier and weightier and weightier to me the more I have grown in Christ. I don't look at the Ten Commandments and go, oh, those seem not, not such of a big deal now. I've been saved so long, you know, I know the Lord. Those are easy. No, they actually feel more daunting to me as a Christian than ever before because in those commandments, I see more of the holiness and the perfection and the righteousness and the goodness of God and his standards over me. I see more of him the more I have walked with him. And I feel more aware 
of how great and perfect and holy he is, the longer I have walked with him. Can anybody here testify to that? Growing and a knowledge of his holiness. That's what Paul's saying. I love the law. The law helps me to know him. But here in the second part of seven, he's also saying this. As time has gone on, I also need you to know that I am more and more and more aware of something else. Not just God's holiness, but I am more aware of my sinfulness. The longer I have walked with the Lord, the more I have become aware. I got problems. It's me. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Truly. My brokenness. My sinfulness. I'm so messed up. Not only do I, I sense more of God's holiness, but I sense more of my, to use an old word, wretchedness. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I understand more of the depth of the pit that I was in, more of how tightly shackled I had been in sin, more of how this brokenness has infected every area of heart and life. The more I've grown and walked with the Lord, the more I've understood the depth of my despair and need. R.C. Sproul says this, the testimony of the greatest saints in history is that the longer they are Christians and the more deeply immersed they become in the word of God, the more acutely conscious they become of their shortcomings. As we grow in grace, we grow in our understanding of our ongoing need for that grace. He describes saying it's important that we're not deceived in thinking that there are shortcuts to Christian maturity, to growing up in the fullness of conformity in the image of Christ. It is a lifelong pursuit None of us will achieve that perfection until we enter glory and the remnants of sin and fleshly are removed from us. <laughs> we sense our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Anybody ever sense that? My flesh is weak. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you'll experience the sense that your flesh is weak. Now here is where I want to give you good news. As I close this morning, I want to show you how the passage ends and then it's going to set us up to talk about this transformative life in the Holy Spirit that we'll get to next week with Romans 8. We're going to spend three weeks together in Romans 8. It's going to be glorious. But Paul ends by saying that if you can understand as you go and grow with God, you're understanding more of his holiness. That is the perfect law that he's talking about. And you're understanding more of his sinfulness. That's that indwelling sin that he's speaking to, right? Our imperfect flesh. Then here's the point of all of it. And I close with this good news. 
This growth in holiness, understanding holiness, and this growth in understanding your sinfulness is meant to lead you to more and more of Jesus Christ. It's meant to lead you to more and more dependency upon the grace and the power of Jesus. This third point, the last two verses of the text, 24 and 25, Paul just wants to point your attention to a deliverer, a deliverer who is a person, a person whose name is Jesus. And he says, question number three, this is where we get our last question. He comes to a point of going, wretched man that I am. It's the point at which Emma Grace looks at me. Caroline did it this week, eight years old. Caught her in a bold face sin. And she knows it. And she, Emma Grace, she looks at me and she starts to cry. When she's doing the drawer slam. <laughs> Emma Grace, in one moment, she remembers the law. She's holding the latch. She sees her sin. She looks me in the eyes. Tears. Uh-oh. How am I going to get out of this? Caroline this week. After that moment with her mom, it wasn't in my presence. I let her do the discipline. I didn't come back to add on shame. Caroline came to me and said, did you know what I did? I said, yeah. Do you want to talk about anything? I just want to know. Will, will, will you forgive me? Oh, precious girl. She knows the law. She feels her sin. Her question is, who will rescue me? What's my way out? This is Paul's question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? If you know God's holiness and you know your sinfulness, and he looks you in the eyes, and you're, you're sitting there wondering, uh, oh, I just need help. Who will rescue me from this? And the resounding answer comes in verse 25 when he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> Aren't you grateful for the grace and the power of God? Aren't you grateful that we have a savior who is a deliverer? He's asking the question, who will deliver me? Knowing who he is and knowing how far gone I am, who will deliver me? Who will move me closer to him? In this ongoing battle where I know he's filled me with his spirit, but there's a need to be surrendered in my flesh. Who? Moment to moment, day by day, as I'm tempted toward pornography or as I'm tempted toward bitterness, as I have this opportunity to stand in the workroom and gossip, as I'm tempted toward cheating in my school exams, as I'm tempted toward unfaithfulness in my relationship or in some area of other stewardship in my life, as I'm tempted to do what ought not to be done, to watch what ought not to be watched, and to say what ought not to be said, and to hear what ought not to be heard, as I'm tempted moment to moment and day to day in real life. I know God's holiness and I know my sinfulness and you want to know how to work this out tomorrow in your mind. You go, who will deliver me from this? And there's an answer. You're no longer on your own. 
you have a deliverer whose name is Jesus Christ. And he is present to give you grace and he is present to give you power. He is present to get you freedom. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, when we know more of his holiness, we know more of our sinfulness, it leads us to an opportunity to know more of Jesus. And thus, as time goes, here's what happens. You begin to know more of the cross. And as time continues, you get to know even more of the cross. And when you get older in your faith and you think you're done learning yet, oh no, you're not. Because you come back again and again to the same instructions and you see more of God and you see more of your sinful self and thus you will learn more and more of the covering, the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. Friends, our life with Jesus is a life of ever-growing appreciation and dependency upon his grace and upon his power. And I wonder today, do you have the heart to see and receive what God has for you? God's perfect law and my imperfect flesh are meant to lead me to depend more and more on the grace and deliverance of Jesus. Today, will you depend on him? Thanks again for listening to this Bible teaching from Island Community Church. We want to encourage you to join us for worship in person soon. No podcast can replace God's good design of gathering with other believers in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church, visit us at iccmemphis.com. We offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.